0: Again, the URL is UnchainedCrypto.Substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto seven years ago, and as a senior editor, at Forbes was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the January third, twenty twenty-three episode of Unchained. Are you getting more questions than ever from your crypto curious or skeptical family and friends? Send them my crypto explainer on TED at go.ted.com slash Laura Shin. Minima is a new layer one blockchain designed to run in full on a smartphone. Join over 300,000 Minima node runners on the incentive program today to start earning every month until mainnet launch. Get your node set up at Minima.global. DeFi Saver is an all-in-one management app for top lending protocols on Ethereum, such as Aave, Maker, Liquity, and Compound. They're best known for their one-transaction rebalancing options and automated liquidation protection features, and you can check them out on Ethereum, Arbitrum, and Optimism today. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com slash Unchained. Buy, earn, and spend crypto on the Crypto.com app. New users can enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in the first seven days. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code Laura. Link in the description. Today's topic is the outlook for 2023. Here to discuss are Lucas Nutzi, head of R&D at CoinMetrics, and Larry Cermak, VP of Research at The Block. Welcome, Lucas and Larry.
1: Thank you, Laura. Hi, Laura. Happy to be here.
0: 2022 was a doozy for the crypto industry, certainly one for the history books. What developments do you think we'll see in 2023 that will be a direct result of the events of last year? Lucas, do you want to start?
2: Yeah, I think with the collapse of FTX, uh, we've seen a bit of a reckoning, uh, especially in DeFi projects that uh, were supported by FTX. Uh, I think in 2023, we're going to see a lot more search for product market fits. Uh, I think FTX uh, was uh, really centered around the speculative use case of crypto assets, uh, where it predominantly served as a speculation platform. Right? They did fund a lot of really interesting projects in the space. But at the same time, the majority of their focus was really uh, the speculative use case. I think given the scale of the collapse of FTX, we're going to see a really a reshift in in priorities and potentially a focus on use cases that really add value and potentially abstract away even the notion that there's a blockchain in the background. Uh, I think the product market fit of of projects is going to get tested, especially if markets continue to contract, and we might finally see projects that uh, have product market fit to survive uh, because they're providing you know, services that are valuable.
0: Larry, what do you think?
1: Yeah, so I, I agree with uh, Lucas. A couple of things I would add on top of that. So with, uh, with the collapse of FTX and Three Arrows and a bunch of other projects, uh, we've also seen a, a pretty large collapse in terms of credit in the market. Which generally just translates to less liquidity because market makers have less available cash to market make with. On top of that, we also see significantly less retail in the market, which kind of removes the other side of, of a lot of the trade. So that also translates into, into slightly less liquidity. So I think that will continue in 2023. And, and just overall, exactly like Lucas said, there's going to be flights to actual quality and, and, and there's not going to be as much speculation. Uh, I think the the macro markets will continue kind of dictating how crypto markets overall recover and how they turn out uh, in 2023. Just overall, it's going to be slightly slower and quieter than we saw in 2022. That would be kind of my guess. And there's going to be a lot of impact from 2022, mainly because people are going to be scared. They're going to be constantly looking for, you know, as skeptical as you can be. We already see that now. Uh, everyone second-guessing everything. Um, And I think that's going to continue being a trend.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I would say that part of that also is simply because the public perception of crypto has really taken a beating. So when you talk about how there's not that much retail. I, I don't know how soon they're going to come back. But one thing I wanted to ask just to draw on your comments a little bit more is I saw that CoinMetrics published this chart of the crypto prices in 2022. I'm sure everybody saw this because this was a very sobering chart with, you know, fire engine red colors for uh, how <laughs> the prices have gone. Something that was fascinating to me was that some of the coins that fared better were ones that aren't even thought of as very good, like Tron, Ripple, BSV, and Ethereum Classic, which is kind of funny. Um, But anyway, so I was just curious. Like, do you feel that the prices are going to draw down even further in 2023, or are we going to see some uptick somewhere, or what's your take?
2: Yeah, this was a year, or 2022 was a year of pain. Right, there was a lot of projects that just collapsed, uh, effectively became zombie projects with no one really backing them, Um, and. What well, you saw with uh, projects that uh, were able to retain some uh, momentum uh, were the communities behind these projects that at times are not the healthiest, but the fact that there are communities behind these projects certainly helps on the market side. If you have a market that's predominantly retail for some of these assets that are deemed you know, not of particularly high quality, but uh, you have a strong retail community, uh, that can also be incredibly powerful. There's only so much that, that will get you, though. There's, um, you know, at some point that project needs to deliver or it needs to continue to, to pump in order for this cohort of retail investors to continue to support it. And we saw this in the aftermath of the 2017 bull market as well, right? Uh, a lot of projects that had huge communities, IOTA, XRP, they weren't immune to the continuation of the bear market. Uh, and the same might be happening here where you have a little bit of a lag, but uh, retail users are quite price responsive, so if we continue to see a decrease, uh, those projects will follow suit as well. I think the ones that uh, were able to survive, uh, I think they're still hanging on to that belief that the prices will will continue to pump, which what we're seeing in the global macro uh, situation, you know, it's probably not going to be the case.
1: One more thing I'll add to that, and, and I totally agree with Lucas, is is that there's also uh, the effect of just projects that have unlocks where investors bought a lot of coins for cheap. And with a lot of the projects that you named, you know, XRP, BSV, even Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, th- th- it just doesn't exist. But then you look at something like Solana or some of these other coins and, you know, VCs bought ads still at this point it has gone down 95 percent, but they still bought at prices that are still like 80 percent lower these dynamics do a lot in a, in a bear market, in a bull market, it, it almost <clears throat> became a meme where there's an unlock, you know, the price will actually go up uh, in, in this market. Long term, it, it actually isn't that way because in some investors are very much in the red. And if they have bought tokens for cheap, those tokens will be sold. And, and you know, when you look at on chain stuff, which I'm sure Lucas is tracking as well, you see a ton of selling, even at these really low prices by investors and, and some of it is forced selling because they're just d- down a lot and they don't want to disappoint anymore. So these unlocks actually are quite bearish uh, in a market like this. And I think that will continue being the case. Uh, we've seen a ton of ton of VC investment in the lo- uh, in, in 2022. And, and some of these prices are still much higher than some of these investors bought them. at. so I think that will continue being a trend as well. Uh, it will become much more popular for diligent investors to track unlocks much closer uh, in 2023 for sure.
0: Yeah. And not to pile on with the negative news, but in addition to that, we still have kind of continuing fallout and contagion. Obviously, you know, we had, you know, the first sort of collapses, but then now because of FTX, there's this like cloud on the horizon with the Genesis, DCG, Gemini earn situation by extension, even Grayscale potentially could be a problem here. So what do you guys think might happen there? And how do you think that will also affect both the industry and the market?
2: Yeah contagion is not something that happens immediately right uh, it, it certainly did for a lot of projects in the aftermath of of the the collapse of FTX projects that didn't really have that much runway or that even from a, a public perception because they're a part of you know what's now considered a, a massive scam uh, they were unable to to survive but a lot of these larger institutions they're able to move capital around and obtain short-term liquidity At times, at very unfavorable terms. So there's always that that danger that in the short term they can remain afloat and suppress any sort of concerns around their solvency. But uh, people are skirmish and 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 afraid because if those conditions are not favorable to the point where they're just pushing the problem further down the line, you have these cascading failures, right? And I think it's it's highly likely that we haven't seen the Full extent of contagion. It's been you know only a couple of months now. Not even a couple of months. I uh, I should say that the collapse of FTX um, feels like the years. Like, <laughs> it feels like four years. <laughs> uh, it's it's been uh, you know only only a few a few uh, days. So it's it's something that uh, will likely haunt us a, a little bit still uh, in twenty twenty three. I think we're going to have a couple of additional companies that were able to obtain short short term liquidity. And survive push the the issue further down the line, but if those conditions are also market dependent and the markets continue to contract, the contagion will also lead to their their demise as well. Uh, one quarter is really nothing uh, when it comes to this level of uh, the scale of fraud. So we'll, it, it will likely be a recurring topic in twenty
1: twenty three. Yeah. What, what I'll add is that contingent really works in funny ways. Uh, like, like we saw with Terra, Terra then translated into three arrows having issues and then going down completely, obviously combined with GBTC, but regardless. And then after that, it took another five months, uh, for FTX to go down whilst having issues with both of these. And, and when you look at Genesis, I mean, Genesis is quite similar. I mean, obviously, I, I don't think that there is fraud there, but they have been exposed to effectively every single collapse that we we saw in 2022. I mean, it was, it was Terra exposure. It was exposure to three arrows. They had, there was some blockfi deals as well. And then I think finally the FTX as well. So there has been just so much beating that Genesis has taken. And obviously there isn't much concrete information. Uh, but I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty much understood that there are at least you know, one, maybe even two billion in a hole right now. And it kind of remains to be seen how that will be solved and what effect that will have on its parent organization and other companies in that parent organization.
0: Do you want to make a prediction about one or the other? If DCG goes down, this, this is going to be big news for the industry, so...
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's just a really difficult time to be struggling because everyone else is struggling and it's really difficult to raise capital. Like that that's the that's the entire story of the end of 2022 is that the projects that are having issues regardless of how well they're structured and how well their business looks. It's really really hard to actually get any capital, and I think that's exactly what DCG and Genesis are running into right now. So I don't. It's it's difficult to make predictions. They could find capital somewhere, but I think if they don't, it could definitely be a pretty significant issue because Genesis and Grayscale are massively important. And Grayscale, as we know, you know, two products, GBTC and ETH-E, e- 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 e, they're both trading at roughly 50% discounts uh, right now. And it's because everyone is scared of what could happen if this actually ends up materializing. And it, it is somewhat of a possibility that those funds would have to be liquidated if someone else, for example, bought these assets and they wanted to go in that direction. Whereas if it's just grayscale and you know that Barry isn't really interested in liquidating any of any of the funds because they're just generating a lot of money, there's less certainty there. So I think I think we'll end up seeing, but it's definitely scary and it's definitely worth like keeping really really close eye on.
2: I was just gonna say that I think valuations will have to come down too if it is in fact a very tough environment to raise capital and. Even perpetuate their their business model, right? A lot of their their business models rely on uh, folks trading demand for for lending, and with markets contracting, so does you know their revenues. So if they have to basically raise funds on the, on the basis of of equity, it's very likely that valuations will have to come down quite considerably in 2023 as a result of you know their short-term liquidity crunch
1: yeah and I, I will just say I think that's already happening, and one good example of that is when you look at Coinvest stock, I mean it's trading at less than 80 billion dollars market cap, and it in the bear market 2018, which in my opinion was actually worse in a lot of ways because people thought crypto would die, it they raised at eight billion, so it's currently less than the investors paid in 2018 bear market, and that's on the second you know after the direct listing when it's trading on the market. So I think valuations have already contracted insanely. Uh, it's just not as visible yet, but I think this year it will become visible quite quite a lot more.
0: So it's interesting that you said that you felt that the 2018 bear market was actually worse because people have been noticing that in previous bear cycles, the prices would draw down, but they wouldn't ever really go below the high of the previous cycle, the previous bubble. And in this cycle, they have gone, well, at least for Bitcoin, it's gone below the high of the 2017-2018 cycle. So I was curious why you thought that was and kind of what you thought that meant for this bear market.
1: Yeah, I think just to clarify, I think in some ways it's better, in some ways it's worse. I think where it's actually better is that there are now... It's it's kind of common uh, thinking that crypto will be back, that it will it will continue coming back, and that the prices will eventually rebound. In 2018, I remember, like, I, you know, I, I basically I started working at the block late 2018. I was thinking in, in two years I might not have a job because like this thing just might not turn out. And 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 this year I'm just not seeing that as much. But it's also worse in a lot of ways. Like I, we didn't see as many collapses uh, as we did. In 2022, like 2018, it was just kind of like slow bleeding into nothing, and projects dying because they ran out of money. Whereas in 2022, we just saw absolute—you know—these projects get absolutely destroyed, like dropped to actual zero, which, which previously was kind of a meme; it can't go to zero. But a lot of these projects actually did go to zero. So I think those are kind of the the two aspects that that I would compare to. But in a lot of ways, you know, the industry is much larger. And, And to answer your question, why did prices actually go? Lower, I think uh, a reasonable response would be that uh, the macro environment is actually significantly worse than it was 2018. 2018 was kind of isolated, in my opinion, to the crypto bull and bear bear cycles. Whereas now, you know, you have Tesla going down 80% as well. You have other stocks that are very speculatory going down as well. And that's because there's just significantly less capital and because of what central banks are doing with the interest rates you know, that's really challenging when you combine the bear market of the normal cycles in crypto plus also the macro bear market. And I think prices could actually go a lot lower, despite what people think, but they might also not. It's it's just really difficult to read in a market like this.
2: Yeah, I would add that crypto very much trades like an industry, if you think about it as, as an industry, uh, as a highly speculative tech stock, right? So we haven't seen a, a recession coinciding with crypto existing, uh, we, we also haven't seen uh, a period of uh, monetary tightening uh, when crypto existed. So it's, it is very difficult to make predictions and, and, and look retrospectively, right, in, in terms of understanding what would be the market dynamics, because a lot of the investments that came into this space uh, were really coming from traditional funds. Uh, you know, there's certainly a retail mania as well in credit tightening capital is not as fluid and it becomes a lot harder for this scale of investments to really take place that's why i think there's going to be this reckoning of what is this technology actually doing and what problems is it solving because these investors are going to have to be very careful deploying into projects that are you know even pre-launch as in 2017 i was saw in 2017 were really just based on an idea a white paper not a whole lot of actually organic users and and, and and actual software written. In a lot of ways, though, this is a lot more of an optimistic time for the industry relative to 2018. I think in terms of use cases, there are clearly a lot more use cases for this technology now that coincide with more of a thirst for better services. Uh, you know, less surveillance, perhaps uh, in in some of these these apps freedom of speech is 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 a huge topic in today's discourse uh and you know ownership of data, so I think there are a lot of interesting use cases that have been somewhat validated maybe to not to their full extent, but um there are various areas now that really just didn't exist in twenty eighteen maybe were created because of this influx of capital but uh if one of them goes well uh which there's high likelihood that you know one of these Areas that this industry we call crypto is, is, is pursuing will actually provide value. I think th- the industry itself will be, you know, uplifted. Uh, we just haven't really seen that yet, and because it's coinciding with a, a pretty damning collapse in terms of traditional finance and credit tightening, it is something that is concerning. But there are reasons to be optimistic as well.
0: Yeah, so we've touched on crypto venture investing at a few different points in this discussion. And I would say the industry is probably having its own sort of reckoning right now. And yet, it's also just kind of at this interesting place because VCs have raised 70% of all the funding they've ever raised in the last two years alone. Portfolio performance maybe hasn't been so great, but given how much cash they have at the moment, I was curious where you thought crypto VC would go and 2023.
1: I can, I can opine here quickly. I think you're totally right. There's still a lot of cash on the sidelines from these investors. What, I, what we've seen, and we track all these deals as well internally, is that oh, capital hasn't been allocated over the last you know, three to six months as much as, as it was before, despite there being a lot of capital on the sidelines. But also a lot of these funds, as you guys know, like they have a mandate to invest some of them are long only funds uh, and some of them, you know, cannot just justify having a few, billion of doll- a few billions of dollars uh, on the sidelines, not doing anything. So I, I do think that they will eventually have to be allocated, but there is significantly higher standards. Kind of as Lucas mentioned, the valuations have tanked massively. I mean, what, from what I've seen pr- privately, as well as kind of just from the publicly announced deals, Really, most companies are raising right now are raising because they're in distress situations, because they're running out of money and because they're in some way like have to raise or they're just going to have to close the project. And the valuations of like seed investments, as well as Series A, have tanked in my kind of experience, at least 60%. Uh, it, it, like six months ago, we saw valuations for seed investments going from anywhere like $6,200 million. And now they're lucky if they're getting 15 to 20, just like before. So so I think you know that's playing a large effect as well but on, on the other hand these funds eventually will have to allocate the capital and I think there's just going to be more focus for quality and for projects that are more long term oriented and maybe not as focused on speculation that would be kind of my quick opinion.
2: Yeah I completely agree. I think there's there for some VCs this is the perfect environment right because especially for the companies that need short term liquidity uh those that raised in 2020 2021 And even some that have raised earlier this year before the market saw the second kind of wave of of failures and and contractions. Uh, It is the perfect environment because they have the dry powder. There are companies that need capital and that are taking these valuation hits. So it's something that to them could be very positive. Uh, I think the nature of what they're doing, though, has probably changed quite a bit, especially when it comes to due diligence. I think what folks have realized post-FTX collapses the level of due diligence that some of these VCs were doing uh, in their companies that they were investing, uh, in the individuals that they were backing, was really lackluster. So there were, you know, our analysis at Coinmetrics has shown some pretty crazy smoking guns around FTX uh, and their activities that were just not really understood or or acknowledged by a lot of these VCs, right? I don't I don't think they were scrutinizing a lot of these projects to their full extent. So in a lot of ways, this is a positive for the industry as well, because there's pressure for them not only to take these you know, deals that for companies that are in distress that need short-term liquidity, but it also enables them to or pushes them to do more due diligence on their investments uh, and potentially prevent scams uh, of this magnitude from growing because now we probably learned a pretty painful lesson in in the need for due diligence. So in a lot of ways, this is a very favorable environment for VC investing, but it has changed in terms of the nature of the the work that's that entails uh, making investment in, in, into a crypto company.
0: At the moment, another part of the industry that is just kind of a source of mostly bad news um, is Bitcoin mining. Bitcoin miners, as an industry, are about four billion dollars in debt, and a number of them, including large ones like Core Scientific, have filed for Chapter Eleven bankruptcy. And also, obviously, with the price of Bitcoin in the doldrums, mining is actually unprofitable for many or most of them. So, what do you guys expect to happen amongst Bitcoin miners in 2023?
2: I think there's going to be a massive collapse in in hash rates. That's uh, you know just waiting to. To take place, um, a lot of the ASICs that are alive right now mining Bitcoin, uh, they were financed through debt, um, and because of the contraction in the price of Bitcoin, a lot of these operations are just not profitable, right? But they're they're forced to continue to mine because they need to get something out of their existing hardware. They cannot afford not to mine. So there's a lot of speculation as to why hash rate was continuing to to go up when the price of Bitcoin had Collapse quite drastically. And that's essentially the reason, right? They do not own the machines that they, they're using to mine Bitcoin. Uh, a lot of them finance these machines, and those machines sometimes are even used as collateral. So as uh, the market conditions uh, worsen, their profitability goes down. Electricity prices have also been fluctuating quite a lot. It's not as bad as, as it once was, but they had to take a hit. From increases in electricity prices, uh, coinciding with a very negative uh, environment for Bitcoin, so ultimately I think we're going to see a continuation and in, in, in a decrease in hash rates, and we'll see a lot of, of markets for ASICs, like secondary markets for ASICs, but uh, likely to you know extend this the, the pain. Really, I don't think we'll that this. Decrease in hash rate will be a cause of concern from a security perspective. All of the evidence that we've seen is that Bitcoin drastically overpays for its security in terms of potential attack vectors. But it is not something that is positive news. Really, uh, there's no twist around you know why this is potentially good. I think it is going to be a painful environment for miners heading into next year as a result of this this collapse. Not only in the of, of Bitcoin hash rate going down and also the value of these ASics that were at times uh, paid over uh, MSRP also collapsing as a result of, of, of this contraction in the market.
1: The only thing I'll add to that is, is and I totally agree is that this will really be a cleansing of, of the overall kind of quality of miners out there, the companies overall, those that have that are prepared to you know properly use hedges properly actually, sell and and not overuse the credit that that they can get those are the ones that kind of deserve to survive in my opinion and those that haven't done a good job that have just been kind of greedy and and overextended because they thought that you know bitcoin price would keep going up or for whatever reason uh those maybe don't deserve it as much because then they end up causing issues like like we've seen and there's a ton of companies with exposure to these firms like 100 including genesis i think Uh, so so these while they're much smaller than some something like FTX blowing up or or any other company filing for bankruptcy, these also have effects on, on the space overall. And I think overall, exactly like Lucas said, it, it, hash rate will go down, uh, but it will actually improve the quality of these operations for the next cycle. And the people who actually know what they're doing are going to be very valuable. Uh, it's when price goes up, it's easy to make money. When price goes down, it's actually very difficult. And, and those that are run the most efficiently, those are the ones that survive. So hopefully that translates into the next cycle. Hopefully it becomes.
0: Yeah, it's almost like we're seeing evolution in action in the industry. In a moment, we're gonna talk about Ethereum, but first a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis is here to help. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Gain unparalleled visibility and maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting chainalysis.com unchained. DeFi Saver is an all in one management application for a number of decentralized finance protocols on Ethereum, Arbitrum, and Optimism. The app has dedicated dashboards for lending protocols such as Aave, MakerDAO, Liquity, and Compound as well as integrations that allow quick access to yield-earning protocols such as Yearn, Convex, MStable, stable and the newly released Chicken Bonds from the Liquity team. Some of their most notable features include quick one-transaction rebalancing and automated liquidation protection of collateralized debt positions. On top of that, they also have tools for collateral swaps, debt swaps, and instantly moving positions between different protocols. Once you load up the app at DeFiSaver.com, make sure to enable the simulation mode first so you can freely test all available features before diving in further. What's the most important thing about crypto? It's not transactions per second, it's not convenience, and it's not even smart contracts. It's decentralization to achieve censorship resistance so we can all be free. Minima is a new layer one blockchain, designed to run in full on a smartphone, so that anyone can participate in building Minima's decentralized network as an equal. Join over 300,000 Minima node runners on the incentive program today to start earning every day until mainnet launch. Get started at Minima.global. Join over 50 million people using Crypto.com, one of the easiest places to buy, earn, and spend over 250 cryptocurrencies. New users enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in their first seven days. With Crypto.com Earn, get industry-leading interest rates of up to 14.5% on over 30 coins, including Bitcoin. Earn up to 8.5% on stablecoins. With the Crypto.com Visa card, you can spend your crypto anywhere. Enjoy up to 5% cash back instantly plus 100% rebates for your Netflix and Spotify subscriptions, and zero annual fees. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Back to my conversation with Lucas and Larry. Ethereum had actually probably a pretty good 2022, except for one sort of big black eye, which is the fact that kind of before the merge, people didn't seem to pay too much attention to how centralizing the Flashbots MEV boost relay could be. And then obviously when the sanctions happened right before the merge, suddenly that became a concern. And then obviously after the merge, now we're seeing 70% of blocks being censored. MEV boost itself accounts for about 60% of all blocks in Ethereum. So I was curious what you thought would happen to Ethereum uh, in terms of this question of centralization.
2: Yeah, it's probably one of the most concerning trends uh, in in terms of of, of censorship. I think the whole structure of uh, MEV infrastructure is concerning not only from the censorship perspective, but uh, there are also single points of failure that were introduced as a result of this, right? So if you look at how to attack a crypto network, a you know, one-on-one. The biggest power that an attacker could get is the composition of a block, the transactions that are inside of that block. It is like this notion of, of adding transactions to a block and aggregating transactions to a block is basically what MUV is, right? You want to organize the transactions in a block in the most profit-maximizing way, at times by receiving transactions directly from traders that are uh, extracting arbitrage profits from various different markets. This in the context of proof of work is done mostly by mining pools. So mining pools would aggregate uh, the work from all the their constituents that were using that mining pool. And they themselves would select um, the composition of the transactions in a block. It's still the case that, you know, the majority of blocks in Bitcoin are selected by less than 20 entities. Uh, and it is probably one of the biggest sources of concern, at least in my view, uh, when it comes to security, the hypothesis with Ethereum was that that structure would be improved because now you have a much broader set of of validators that are acting like like miners and and appending the blockchain, adding new blocks to the blockchain. Uh, But in reality, there's another centralizing force uh, behind this, right, where you basically replace the structure with mining pools. With their MEV counterparts uh, and MEV infrastructure providers, so it is in a sense, uh, you know, pretty negative because it it is something that the trend for MEV and the profitability of MEV is a lot more tempting than, say, what a mining pool operator would do to maximize their profits. Uh, With MEV, you have a lot more entities involved um, and uh, that are relying on these open source at times uh, uh, endpoints, but a lot of them are not open source. uh, And that also has its own set of challenges. But uh, decentralization forces are are, are very powerful, uh, especially in MEV because centralization, the more centralized that you get, the more opportunities you have to make more money, let alone all of the potential security concerns that emerge as a result of this. There are some good news there. I think there's a lot of work uh, in... What's called proposer block separation, PBS that's being discussed right now, I do think it's something that needs to take place at, at the base layer. and we've had strong cohorts of users that support this idea that ABV um, uh, needs to be more modular and there need to be more safeguards so that um, you're basically not replacing a structure that was less than ideal uh, with a structure that is you know more predatory and potentially dangerous to the entirety of the network. Uh, So bear markets tend to be positive in the sense of it's when things get billed. uh, And I'm hopeful that uh, PBS will be something pretty high on the priorities list within the the Ethereum researchers that are working exclusively
1: on on MEV. That was a really good explanation. So I don't have much to add. I will say, Laura, exactly like you said, that it was kind of unexpected for a lot of people that censoring blocks in this case or complying with sanctions would happen this fast. I think that was, that was definitely quite unexpected for a lot of people, given the tornado situation. Exactly as Lucas said, there are now initiatives, and Flashbots is, is developing one of them as well, to kind of like decentralize building of the blocks itself and kind of like create a mempool, kind of a plug-in mempool that would solve some decentralization issues. But I think it was not expected that, that this would come up as fast as it did. And, and therefore, it is one of the largest concerns for me as well when it comes to Ethereum. And it's also slightly concerning that a lot of like really prominent Ethereum community members are not talking about it. And they're kind of like ignoring it and saying, oh, this is going to be fine because you know a year from now or two years from now, this will be fixed. I would expect, uh, just like in Bitcoin, when there is some threat, even if it's just perceived as short term to decentralization, people would speak up a lot and people would really you know, talk about this as much as 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 much as they possibly can. And that's one thing that I found quite concerning myself is that a lot of the prominent people have just not talked about it enough and uh, are just kind of like closing their eye to those concerns. Whereas if it's a concern with Solana or a concern with anything else that, that, that is related to centralization, they bring it up immediately. That kind of approach by the community itself is a bit concerning for Making the blockchain long term as decentralized as possible. Those just be some some thoughts I I would add to what Lucas said because that was great.
0: Yeah, but are you so? It seems like you both are kind of optimistic that the community will resolve that. Is that how I could characterize I, that?
1: I am. Um, I, I think this is not going to be an issue, but it, it's kind of unclear how long that will take. Uh, long term, it could it could be a year, could be two years, and in that time, you know, there, is, there are att- attack vectors uh, in Ethereum that are not good for the project itself.
2: Sarah, so I was just going to say that, you know, I, I really resonate with this notion that a lot of voices in the Ethereum community, I think, need to be louder about this being, uh, in fact, a problem. I think this is how these issues get resolved. I'm optimistic that, you know, this is, in essence, a technical problem uh, to be solved. It's not something possible. There are various solutions that have been proposed. Uh, to improve the um, decentralization of, of meV uh, it's interesting if you talk to meV engineers that are working on this directly uh, it's almost like a nuclear scientist mentality you know they understand they're working with plutonium and uh, they don't want uh, it to lead to contagion and you know a nuclear disaster uh, I think there's awareness of their responsibility a lot of these folks might not talk as publicly as others but it is something that I've seen a lot of really interesting even papers that are published uh, openly about fair transaction sequencing, block composability uh, in terms of of, of MEV, it, it is something that needs to be discussed because in a period where you see decreases in interest, especially from retail in DeFi and, and uh, DeFi protocols, MEV opportunities also decrease. Uh, and what that might ultimately lead to is uh, MEV searchers uh, and firms that specialize in doing MEV engaging in riskier and potentially more dangerous behavior. There are various types of MEV attacks that are detrimental to the health of the network, where you're actually perpetuating these so-called reorgs, where you're rolling the chain back. So transactions that you thought were final are no no longer final. They not even exist in the blockchain. And there are new novel um, attack vectors that uh, exist because of this ability. So, uh, I I don't I think shrugging this problem as you know something that you know is not a problem I think it's it's dangerous because as things get more uh, bearish, what we've seen is that the strategies get more creative, and that creativity might entail an impact to real users of these networks through things like time banded attacks, which is really the the, the worst-case scenario for 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 an MEV attack, which actually entails sending transactions back to the mempool and Disrupting, you know, several users. So it does seem like there are some promising solutions to do this. But I, I definitely echo uh, Larry's comments on, you know, we need to take this this issue seriously and elevates the folks that are actually working on this.
0: Yeah. So as I mentioned before, despite this one major issue, Ethereum otherwise had uh, what, by all accounts, is a really pretty good year. Um, in addition to the successful merge, which obviously was a, an amazing technical feat, Ethereum used to face a lot of competition from other layer ones, the kind of Luna Vax world, which obviously Solana and Luna are either non-existent or struggling. <laughs> um, so I was curious kind of where you thought that was going to go, if there were going to be credible competitors in 2023, because related is sort of this scaling dilemma. Because um, in 2022, we did see some of these layer twos take off. So I kind of wondered how you thought the scaling competition would play out in 2023.
1: I think similar, like you said, generally, there's just going to be less appetite for projects that are just alternative layer ones, because there's just less, there's going to be less speculation and less cash in the system overall. So I think those narratives will slowly kind of be less powerful uh, as they were in 2022. On the other hand, exactly like you mentioned, I think layer twos are all kind of coming to the point where they're maturing as, as technology as, and and especially in the bear market, there's slightly more time to build. You can, you can take your time a little bit more uh, prior to shipping and actually, Properly built product, I think that's going to be the the largest focus. Uh, obviously, we already saw optimism arbitrum gain some traction and some activity. I think the first half of of the, of twenty twenty three will be uh, zk rollups actually launching for the first time. I, I, I was kind of optimistic this would happen in twenty twenty two, unfortunately, it didn't. I am now again optimistic this will happen in the first half of twenty twenty three. Uh, I think, you know, even the solutions that Polygon is building to kind of transfer the proof of stake chain into a zk EVM chain is really interesting. You have Starknet launching relatively soon, uh, ZkSync as well, and then Scroll, like those projects are actually really advanced when it comes to technologically almost solving the scaling trilemma, in my, in my opinion, while inheriting really good security for the system overall. And I think that's where that's where most of the focus will be. What I think the dynamic that will be interesting is that a lot of these projects will have their own tokens. We already have Optimism token, Arbitrum will no doubt do a token relatively soon. You have Starknet that already said that they will have a token. And all of these projects will have tokens. And then how does the value accrual look uh, like for these projects if they get a lot of traction, if, if it actually becomes a layer where a lot of the... Smart contract applications happen. How does that battle with the with the main chain, uh, with Ethereum, when it comes to investability? Uh, I think that's going to be really interesting to to see and and to kind of witness as we go in, into the next bull market. Hopefully, within a few years, uh, it's not completely clear to me which chain actually uh, kind of accrues the most value. Like if Starknet becomes the most valuable or the most activity happens on Starknet, then and Ethereum is kind of just for uh, validating those those actions that happen there. Then where does the value actually accrue? Uh, and I'm not totally clear on that. I don't think many people are actually.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. I think the there's been a reckoning of, of L1s as well, right? In terms of what is truly their value proposition, uh, and I think with Solana specifically, are the trade offs that come with that level of scalability actually worth it. I I can tell you, you know, trying to do on-chain analysis on Solana was incredibly difficult in the aftermath of DFDX collapse. You know, Solana in one day produces more data than Bitcoin produces in an entire year. Uh, That's roughly around around 100 gigabytes of new data per day, which is quite drastic. Uh, And it entails some quite unique challenges uh, when it comes to looking at historical information, because you need to go back in time and store that data historically to be able to answer some b- basic questions of like what was the balance of Alameda, uh, you know, back in early 2022. A lot of nodes just discard that information by default. Uh, so transparency is not something that a lot of these L1s truly embraced, which I think now, because of the severity of the FTX collapse, will be top of mind and at times it might be structurally incompatible with how these L1s were even designed from the, ge- from the get-go. So there will be a gigantic, I think, push to improve the transparency of uh, these networks. To give you one example of this, uh, we found some really interesting mints of the Serum decentralized exchange uh, happening in Ethereum uh, and going straight to Solana via bridge. Non- non-disclosed mints, comprising about 60% of the circulating supply of serum just supply that was just minted off thin air and sent to Wait, when that was uh that took place i believe in uh early 2022 and then mid 2022 so when when we think about you know how did uh, Sam make bail and was able to get bail money just a percentage of
1: it right that that was that was no added.
0: no no there oh, was wasn't. no okay yeah it's like house. literally yeah, yeah.
1: It's, it's 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 pretty complex right they just put up the house and then like the tw- 250 mil is just like kind of you know celebratory thing i guess
0: it's-, it's like some yeah just a number they put on there it's like if you don't show up you know your parents and and these other signers will have to pay this money yeah yeah but there was no money actually exchanged yeah
2: i was making this point because There's a lot that you can't really assess about, you know, Sam's true net worth as of today, because you can't really look at the data uh, from those mints going into Solana, right? There's a lot of transparency issues with uh, a lot of these ones that prevent you from being able to do due diligence at their full extent. And if it's true that, you know, VCs have also been through this reckoning of, Having to be more due diligent uh when it comes to um uh investing in new layer ones, I do think transparency will be at the top of of kind of the priorities, even more so than something like scalabilities now that we have roll-up solutions that uh, are fully scalable uh live. So I think it's something that layer ones will have to rethink. A lot of the layer ones that really made strides in the previous run uh will have to be redesigned so mm-hmm. that they're more. Friendly towards, you know, on-chain analysts and and, and optional transparency uh, as a really a requirement for for an investment.
1: I just wanted to add, like, really quickly, two things w- that I learned since the FTX collapse. Really, one is that very few people are actually checking the chain. Like, you can say, "Well, everyone's watching the blockchain all the time." It's actually not true. Like, sometimes I find things randomly by manually scrolling through Etherscan. scan. And no one found before, and it's like a really important thing. So, I would say that needs to change as well into the next market. Like, there need to be better monitoring tools, people need to pay more attention just in general, because exactly like Lucas said, there were a lot of things that we could have picked up on if we actually looked for the right things. Hopefully, that will change. Second thing that I've learned as well is, is how important distribution of coins and, and just in general, how these layer ones are actually distributed. You know, people would say even if Solana is like relatively decentralized, it actually ultimately doesn't matter as much if so much ownership is concentrated in someone's pocket that then ends up being a bad actor. We just see how much bad will and just bad attention. And just in general, the, the effect that something like this can have on a project itself, just because one person had a lot of the supply and was publicly associated with it. So those two things I would just point out to people that I think were kind of, I, I learned that they're more important than than I initially thought based on some of these actions that happened in the last month.
0: Yeah, oh my gosh, I completely agree with you on that first point. Like in the days leading up to the collapse when people couldn't find any wallets that looked like cold storage for FTX, Like that just effing blew my mind. I was like, how did nobody ever notice that before? Like that is like (laughs) what the whole point of having an exchange is, is that you're supposed to store these things for people and protect them from being hacked. And the notion that they didn't even have anything like that was just like, what? Like, you know, how did this never get noticed before? I kind of couldn't believe it. I was just, yeah, my jaw was on the floor. Um, all right, let's talk about stable coins, which, you know, most people probably thought that this was sort of a sleepy part of the industry. And then lo and behold, when the macro environment completely changes, suddenly competition heats up. And this year we saw this battle in stable coins, finance leveraged BUSD to try to take market share from circles, USDC, or, or at least, you know, who knows what they were actually trying to do. It just sort of seemed that way. Um, (laughs) huge collapse in the world of algorithmic stablecoins, plus, you know, just the general fact that they've never really worked and Tether somehow (laughs) taking more criticism and yet surviving. What do you guys think will happen in the world of stablecoins in 2023?
1: Look, it's, it's an insanely good business model in an environment like this. Like you look at like crypto companies and the outlook for the next year. You know, Circle and Tether, and as well as Paxos, they're insanely good position when it comes to their business health uh, currently and how they will perform in twenty twenty three. Because as long as the interest rate keep relatively high, and as long as they don't pay out any of that interest rate to users, they're they're literally printing cash. And, it, and we're talking about like large magnitudes. I don't think people realize. Like we're talking about like hundred billion total supply. You multiply that by like roughly five percent, what you can get on on that. It's it's a lot of money. Uh, and those companies will continue growing and continue doing well. And and exactly like you said, there will be battle for for those for those interest rates for their revenue uh, because it's actually a lot. And I think Binance understood that relatively early on. Um, and obviously they're working with Paxos and. My understanding is that they have a 50-50 split when it comes to revenue. So, you know, actually this year it might be a decent chunk of the total revenue that they make, even compared to trading fees and lending fees and all that, uh, because it's just the environment is really favorable to stablecoins. And I think just like the last bear market 2018, 2019, they've continued doing well. Like, of course, there, there are some redemptions, but actually people continue using them. They're used for investments, they're used for trading, they're used for some commerce already as well. And they definitely have one of the largest product market fit in an environment where there's not as much speculation as before. So I think this is going to be actually like, unironically, un- this is going to be one of the more exciting things to look out for in 2023. Because it's just, it's just these companies will go at it. Uh, and, and you'll see Circle talk smack about Paxos. You'll see them talking smack about Tether. They'll just be going at it. And I think that, that could get interesting about uh, 2023
2: yeah as as an instrument to you know attain stability right i think the reserve backed stablecoins have certainly achieved a product market fit i think uh the collapse of of algorithmic stablecoins like luna uh i think really shed light on the dangers of some of these structures uh, we also saw a lot of you know drama for a back, lack of a better word uh, within uh, maker uh with the assets that support Dai as a as a stablecoin, uh, I think you know a lot of those concerns have been remedied at, at this point. But uh, the reserve backed stablecoins, I think, are are here to stay and have certainly attained substantial liquidity. Uh, you know, we did one of our most popular the Network newsletters uh, this year was an analysis of USDC and USDT. It's very clear if you look at when these assets are used, the time zones where the when these assets are used the most. Tether has achieved a pretty strong product market fit in APAC. Uh, So a lot of very large liquidity providers in the Asia-Pacific zone using Tether as the instrument to attain portability between exchanges, access services in DeFi, hold USD equivalents that uh, attain level of stability. Whereas USDC has achieved the same exact thing in the West. So if you look at uh, Europe and, and US... USDC is the stablecoin that's most predominantly used in specifically in U.S. business hours. So the momentum with these stablecoins is really difficult to break because they are a core component of how a lot of these funds operate. Um, I also think while this is true and that they've certainly achieved product market fits, uh, there's definitely uh, large liquidity providers that are uh, surviving through this bear market that leverage these products. I think they will also be scrutinized by regulators that are now taking a closer look into crypto assets, specifically now from this risk perspective, uh, because stable coins, even the reserve backed stable coins, they're not risk free. Right. Uh, and when I'm talking about risk, it's really the potential for them to be exploited and that leading to chaos and destruction. Uh, which is a big part of my job at CoinMetrics is is, thinking about these attack vectors. For a lot of these stablecoins, one key can mint any arbitrarily large units of these stablecoins. One admin key enables you to mint potentially one trillion USDC, which for DeFi is a gigantic problem, right? Because if I can print a trillion dollars worth of USDC, I can just trade any market that has a pair with USDC and deplete all the liquidity in those markets because they're automated market makers, AMMs, right? They're they're structurally uh, conceived to make markets regardless of, of who I am. So I do think there's gonna be some scrutiny on the governance of stable coins uh, that will likely come in the form of regulation. Um, I don't think it will kill these stable coins. I think these are problems like the presence of admin keys in nearly all reserve backed stable coins um, that are somewhat irresponsibly implemented i think will be scrutinized but not an impossible issue to to solve i just think it's going to become top of mind because now you have this massive focus on security and uh, really investor protection uh, which you know stablecoins play a, a gigantic role in
0: all right let's quickly talk about defi what's interesting to me is you know it definitely had certain wins which were you know how during the great financial crisis of crypto in 2022. A lot of DeFi functioned very well, but trading is down and total value locked is down. Although, you know, it's obviously because the value of the coins themselves have gone down. The thing is the sector's also seen obviously a ton of hacks. So I wondered what you thought would happen in DeFi in 2023.
1: I think exactly like Lucas mentioned previously, I think we need to focus more on the user experience and, and on just abstracting away as much of the blockchain as possible. Like like ideally, you get to a point where you have to, you know, the FTX level of experience in terms of trading. I don't mean in terms of anything else or, you know, Binance is a better example. Uh, but just something that works as well uh, that actually uses blockchains and, and allows people you know let's say in china or people where maybe there's more restrictive activity to actually use these tools properly you know i think the uidx probably gets the closest but it's still not quite there yet uh it's not there yet for multiple reasons and a lot of them go back to to scalability but regardless i mean there's still a long way to go there um and i think with the collapse of FTX and with some of these like liquidity concerns that you now have with exchanges, like their, their concerns, that if Genesis goes down, what impact they'll have on on Gemini and you know those sort of concerns, I, I feel like we've seen every single exchange uh, being illiquid on Twitter over the last three weeks. Uh, those concerns can actually be addressed properly in DeFi, but I think the the, the main roadblock is still the usability of of these protocols. And and I think hopefully that will be the focus of 2023 is is to try to make something that people actually want to use, not just actually farm to to make money out of, but something that I actually want to use, just like I wanted to use finance or I want to use other uh, products in the market.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. I think product market fit is, is definitely uh, going to be the biggest topic for DeFi. I do think there are things that excite folks that go beyond, you know, the use cases that people are usually interested in, uh, in terms of of trading, you know, Uniswap is an amazing product, uh, but the AMM model might not be the best for users, right? The fact that you don't know exactly what price you're going to get, the fact that your transaction will likely get uh, sandwiched through MEV. I think there's a lot there that that can be improved, but there are also things in DeFi that you can't really do anywhere else, right? The, The notion of a flash loan, which is a loan that, You don't need to post collateral to attain pretty massive amounts of liquidity uh, as long as you're sending it back to the lender in the same transaction is not something that you could do in finance you could potentially do in finance but it would be a contract thousands and thousands of pages long so so that all the edge conditions are 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 addressed so there are some very unique use cases that i think will uh, be tested Uh, i think you have to have a strong kind of foundation of services that you're providing things like flash loans for market efficiency uh better you know lending protocols that manage risk more actively and you also have to have you know products that are built on top of those foundations uh, that potentially abstract away even the notion of that there there's a blockchain in the background there's going to be some trade-offs in terms of centralization of course uh but i do think there's going to be this path where we need to focus more on what is unique about this technology that you, can't, you really cannot do. And it's not just, oh, I'm going to buy and hold this token because it's going to go 20x. You can't really blame people for doing this because historically, you know, that's what's happened. People want to be better off financially. So they're naturally gravitating towards these use cases. I think DeFi projects, they need to really distill what is unique that they're doing. Uh, provide focus more even on the front end side of things. Uh, once you've determined, you know, from a foundational perspective, what services you're providing, and try to replicate in a non-custodial fashion the level of experience that you saw with things like FTX and, and even Binance when it comes to trading and lending. I think that will be critical to to the success of DeFi. And I think there's even from an from an investment perspective, VCs I think are now better aware of this dynamic given what happened to to FTX and some trauma of that you know happening again i think those solutions will also see uh, funding
0: all right let's definitely discuss nfts trading in them is way down in april trading in ethereum nfts was at over a billion dollars now the trading volume is at around 200 million dollars so where do you expect nft interest in trading to go
1: really good question i think uh we've already seen some like slightly higher activity towards the end of 2022 again i think nfts have actually shown to be relatively resilient when it comes to kind of keep coming back when you know there have been almost like multiple mini cycles for nfts that i've seen over the last two years where the activity goes super high people are speculating and then all of a sudden goes down again and it recovers again and i think the reason For that is that it's just a very easy concept for non-crypto people to grasp, which is like let's collect things that have that have rarity, that have value. Like I'll I'll provide an anecdotal example. Like I, I do these lectures two or three times a year for university classes, and and I do them just basically intro class to crypto as a whole, and. The part that people always care about the most, and these are like twenty-one, twenty-two-year-olds, is always the NFTs. Like they just ask so many questions, like how can this be so valuable? Why? Like why should I be holding these things? Why apes? Why not punks? And and it, I think it's because it's just a really relatable topic to to younger people, and and because of that, I think this will continue coming back up in terms of interest. I don't know about the prices, and I don't know about specific NFTs, but I think there's also really large product market fit that maybe hasn't been as realized as uh, as, as it could be, like there's no reason why some of the trading cards should not live on a blockchain. Why a lot of why people shouldn't be trading these things online instead of actually in person. Uh, so I think I think there will continue being a ton of development there. I don't know if this will happen in 2023, but it, it is something where I've personally seen enough evidence that this is a really really sticky concept that will continue coming back and it will be more more and more used in in some games and in some thinks overall, uh, even though there is also this hate, like almost irrational hate by, by some normal people, there's also an insane amount of interest.
0: And one follow on question, do you also think that the creator royalties will continue to be kind of um, jettisoned by marketplaces? Or do you think, because obviously, we've also seen certain ones sort of embrace them. So what do you think will happen on that score?
1: Yeah, I personally think it's something that's very difficult to enforce on a smart contract level, and I think in the in the nature of just in general how crypto is conducted and how blockchains work, I think long term royalties will not exist. Just by the notion of it's really difficult to make them mandatory. Uh, even though OpenSea has a you know eighty ninety percent of market share and they can kind of like decide what will happen there, uh, they need to compete with other marketplaces. And like you mentioned, some have followed, but some actually haven't. Uh, And I think the most pragmatic view that I have on this is that long-term, this is not going to be a a way to monetize NFTs. It's going to have to be in a different way, purely because of the technical complexity of implementing something like this. And for example, the the OpenSea solution that we've seen, I I think, personally, I think it's a joke. I I, I think it leads to like, there's no point in NFTs if if this is how we will go about enforcing royalties, in my opinion because it leads to effectively kind of like unfair competition and and it's almost like a really large player bullying all the other ones and I don't think that's going to be long-term sustainable. So in yeah, my opinion would, would be it's just not going to work.
0: Yeah, and just for listeners what he's talking about is that their solution is that if you're a creator and you say that you want to enforce royalties then your NFTs will be blocked from being sold on the marketplaces that don't Exactly. Um, yeah, have royalties. So, Lucas, what do you think will happen to NFT trading and also NFT royalties?
2: Yeah, I think the royalties model is something that's really interesting because uh, it, it it is enhancing the utility of NFTs to an extent that, uh, in my opinion, uh, make them a lot more exciting. I think right now, if you think about their utility, it is really as a, as a mechanism to demonstrate wealth in a lot of uh, in a lot of ways, which I think is what. Uh, in a lot of circumstances, drives uh, people into them. Like, how can this, you know, NFT be worth so much money? And I think for a lot of folks, it's, it's a more tangible uh, thing, right? Oh, I own this. This is this is mine. So they're they're naturally gravitating towards it. Um, I I do think w- with the NFT uh, uh, sector, if you will, of of, of, of this industry. The marketplaces have taken a much more substantial role in, you know, making markets for NFTs, uh, determining really how these NFTs will be issued, uh, in in a lot of ways imposing upon like creators uh, on, as we just were talking about, how these NFTs uh, should operate. I think there are a lot of technical issues that are circumvented by a centralized marketplace, but in some ways. uh not in a positive way. I think marketplaces are going to be deeply scrutinized in in twenty twenty three. I think for two reasons. Uh, I think the first reason is there's an argument that they do hurt the utility uh, capa- capabilities of uh, what creators can can do and the policies that creators can implement on who owns their NFTs and what that represents. I think what excites me the most in terms of of use cases goes beyond just, oh, I I hold this, I own this. Uh, It's really, what can you do with it? If it's a song, for example, I'm particularly excited about music NFTs. Can you create a system whereby you're receiving payouts from the song being used in a commercial fashion, be it a commercial or a movie? Things like this, I think, can be incredibly empowering to artists. uh, But marketplaces, because they're trying to do so many things at the same time, Uh, I think they're unable to focus and explore. The other thing that I think will drive a lot of scrutiny to these marketplaces is that, you know, in 2021, we saw a pretty severe market manipulation taking place in a lot of these uh, NFT marketplaces. Uh, There was a paper that has just come out uh, uh, in December of of 2022 that focused on market manipulation, specifically wash trading in NFT marketplaces. Uh, And wash trading is when a buyer and a seller Are the same entity or controlled by the same entity and they're just making markets to uh, simulate volume and potentially increase the prices of a specific asset and this paper i think is is really interesting because they found that 3.4 billion dollars was used last year to pump nft markets via wash trades that happens predominantly on uh, looks rare looks rare marketplace uh, and attackers were highly sophisticated not only in terms of manipulating specific nft markets but also manipulating the token disbursement mechanism that these markets use to reward their participants so looks rare for example they have their own looks token and uh, it is uh, issued on the basis of the volume that you're making the platform so not only were these attackers manipulating these markets to increase the prices of nfts that uh, they had no interest in holding the long term, but they're also uh, getting a disproportionate amount of uh, the token in that platform for making so much market. Uh, and this analysis shows that there are some pretty large entities involved in doing this. So I do think uh, as we continue to uncover um, instances of, of potential uh, unhealthy behavior, In these marketplaces, I think they're going to be scrutinized um, more aggressively by regulators. There are both good and bad things about this. I think the good thing about this is that it will really focus on um, adding more utility to NFTs via more technical methods. Um, I think there are services that might emerge as a result of this that might focus on specific um, uh, parts of, of issuing NFTs. Music, for example, I think. Uh, it, it is at this point underexplored. Uh, but I think it will hurt some user experience, right? Because NFTs have served this role as the stepping stone for a lot of new users into this industry. The marketplaces, they play a massive role when it comes to uh, usability and, and interfacing with with crypto. So it's kind of tough to yeah. make predictions, but it, it is something that I see being scrutinized in 2023.
0: All right. So last question that I want to ask is after the fall of FTX, Binance is now incredibly dominant and amongst crypto only exchanges accounts for nearly 90% of trading yet. It's also reportedly the target of an investigation by the department of justice. So what do you guys think it means for the industry to have this one player in particular Binance, which, you know, as I mentioned, likely has some regulatory baggage to be so dominant? And how do you think that could affect the industry in 2023?
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's not ideal. <laughs> like we saw with FTX, you know, FTX was probably 10 times smaller in terms of the size. And it really, really affected the industry <laughs> in a bad way. Like, and, and the ripple effects have still maybe not, some of them have still not be, be, been seen uh, yet. And it's it's been like a month and a half or something. So I mean to answer your question very bluntly and pragmatically it would be insanely bad if anything happened to Binance in my opinion it's where most liquidity is for most spot pairs for most futures pairs as well and it's 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 just you know yeah i, I don't i don't think it's even comparable to anything in traditional finance it just has a near perfect monopoly currently and if something were to happen to it uh, including some some regulatory issues or Including anything else, it would have a really bad impact on the overall market, and and on top of that, just like the faith in the industry alone, like I think FTX alone in itself will have impact on regulation for years to come, and and also on the faith of new entrants that maybe just started using FTX, didn't weren't familiar with any of these risks, and end up losing all their life savings. You know, if if you if you t- if if that happened to Binance and you have ten ten times more capital on the platform, and it's ten times more important for for volume for overall trading, it would be a complete disaster in my opinion. Like, I think it it would be actually significantly worse than Mt. Gox back in the day, uh, if something were to happen to Binance. Uh, that being said, um, to be slightly more optimistic, I think of course Binance will have regulatory issues in the U.S. right, like just like BitMEX did. Of course, initially in the first two years, they had very lax KYC. Everyone knows that, like they had almost, if you wanted to use it without KYC, you could. You could just split your account between multiple and then do the daily withdrawals. It was very simple. They've ramped ramped it up really a lot over the last two years. Like I, I just saw last few days, how they're still kind of harping on people to update their KYC. There's a lot of KYC now on on Binance and they're quite diligent. They have large compliance teams as well. But there is a lot of baggage from the early days, just like there was a lot of baggage with BitMEX. And now the question is like, what could actually happen? Like, is it just going to be kind of a slap on the wrist fine that CZ can pay off, uh, you know, 0.5% of his net worth? Or is it actually going to be something slightly more significant? I personally think the risk of, you know, Binance being affected so badly by by regulations that it dies completely is quite low myself. But on the other hand, there could be a, an effect, and it scares you know me a lot that something could happen to Binance and it, it would affect the entire industry for you know years and years and years. And I don't I don't know if that would be recoverable. Probably would be, but it would it would be a, a really really bad shock. And a lot of the questions we get from our customers these days is exactly like. What will happen to Binance? Like people are actually really freaked out. They're freaked out about stablecoins, Binance, freaked out about Tether. Everyone's freaked out about everything. But Binance would be by far the worst, in my opinion.
2: I completely agree. Uh, it, it's terrifying uh, the extent to which you know Binance is now predominant uh, in terms of liquidity in, in, in this ecosystem. Uh, I, I think you know to a very concerning degree. Not only because you know there might be regulatory scrutiny that gets potentially overreaching and uh, impacts their ability to continue to provision liquidity uh, or something more concerning you know total regulatory scrutiny right and 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 really a, a massive decrease in in liquidity in the market so it is terrifying i think it is something that uh will hopefully be um addressed with more competition both on the decentralized side with better products that are built on on decentralized platforms as well as better competition, but potentially by entities that were responsible, you know, the basis of the world, which, you know, probably there are two or three of those at this point. It is, to me, a good thing for Binance right now to see what lessons could be learned from the FTX collapse, I think especially related to BNB. To me, that's one of the areas that is the most unclear. I think we have a good sense of their reserves Uh, even though their proof of reserves was lackluster in a lot of ways, could could be completely manipulated if they wanted to. Their custody scheme is not super sophisticated or it's very simplistic. So we can see that they have a lot of reserves uh, in the tokens that they support in their platform and and have liquidity for. Uh, My concern at this point is mostly around the transparency around BNB. BNB exists in three different blockchains, uh, uh, at least right? in a native format. It exists in Ethereum as an ERC-20 token. It was how they initially raised funds. It exists in the Binance Smart Chain, which is the Ethereum fork. It exists in the BNB chain, which is a Cosmos SDK implementation. There isn't a ton of transparency around historical supply for BNB. Uh, And at the same time, there are some very concerning transactions where they likely minted quite a lot of BNB uh, to sell to, you know, private entities like any other token debase other users. I think the time or the the circumstances surrounding Binance at this point uh, will not be aligned with this type of activity. I do think they will have to uh, bring a lot more transparency given their role as a central liquidity provider to the industry, not only on their reserves, but also their BNB uh, holdings, uh, the distribution of BNB across all of these blockchains, and potentially being a lot more, frankly, care careful when it comes to uh, new products that they that they launch, because now they are being further scrutinized. I would say that Binance in 2017 is very different than Binance today, from everything I can see, both on chain and off chain. It's completely different. It's a much more mature exchange, and I think CZ has done a really good job maturing it. It is at the same time, terrifying, because uh, there are these ghosts from the past that might haunt them, either because they might have not abided by all the regulations at that point in terms of AMLKYC, but also because they were operating on a m- much more experimental, you know, carefree way, especially with the issuance and, and, and dynamics of the BNB token. We'll likely learn a lot more about Binance's operation, either because of this investigation or because of voluntary disclosures, hopefully the latter. But um, it is something that I think will we'll get scrutinized uh, in 2023 as well, because of their role now as the predominant liquidity provider in the industry.
0: All right. So we're going to wrap with a one-sentence prediction from each of you for 2023.
1: One sentence. ZKROPS will finally launch and actually be usable by normal people. I
2: like that. I think that's pretty good. Um, Mine will probably be on-chain analysis is here to stay and we're just scratching the surface of what is
1: possible when it comes to diligence.
0: Love it. All right. Where can people learn more about each of you and your work?
1: For me, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Lawmaster. You can also email me at lcermak at theblock.co. And uh, of course, uh, we write a lot of research on the blockresearch.com.
2: And for me, um, I'm Lucas Nutzi on Twitter. Uh, You can read more about my research by subscribing to State of the Network, which is the CoinMetrics newsletter. You go at CoinMetrics.io and go on publications. Uh, There's going to be a link to subscribe to State of the Network. It's where uh, the team at CoinMetrics releases new research.
0: Perfect. It's been a pleasure having you both on Unchained.
2: Thanks a lot. Thank you for having us, Laura.
0: Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Lucas, Larry, and all these topics we discussed for 2023, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Mark Murdoch, Matt Pilchard, Wanner Vanovich, Sam Shrebram, Jimdar, Shashank, and CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.